This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumela Lezondi broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa and you're finding us on 9625 kHz. That is on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. I am with Onelentinti, Amanda Machaka and Tabiso Yefuku. The Zimbabwe National Liberation, that is Tavison Dima rather, let's take a look at the top stories. The Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association urged a former vice president to cut ties with President Robert Mugabe. November is Men's Health Awareness Month, sparking conversations around the world. In economics, ratings agency Moody's downgrades the government of South Africa's debt rating. And in sport, Zimbabwe National Cricket A squad in Dubai for a two-week tour. But first to the news with Onenentinti. Thank you, Spoo. The International Criminal Court has authorized prosecutors to open a full investigation into alleged crimes against humanity in Burundi. Burundi withdrew from the ICC last month, but the court says it can investigate alleged crimes committed at least up to that time. Political violence broke in Burundi in 2015 when President Pierre Nkurunziza ran for a third term in office and won the elections which were boycotted by the opposition. The BBC's Mary Harper has more. Judges said evidence presented by the ICC's chief prosecutor provides a reasonable basis for a full investigation. Alleged crimes include murder, torture, rape and enforced disappearance. The offences were allegedly committed by the Burundian security forces and government-linked groups, including the youth wing of the governing party, known as the Imbonerakure. Violence erupted in Burundi in 2015 after President Pierre Nkurunziza decided to run for a third term in office. A Moroccan cart is sentenced to members of a northern protest movement to 20 years in prison each for torching a police building earlier this year. No one was injured in the fire which damaged the building and forced the evacuation of dozens of policemen from the roof. In August, another activist was also sentenced to 20 years in jail in connection with the Assin attack. Northern Morocco has, rocked, has been rocked by months of protest after the death in October last year of a fisherman who had, was crushed in a rubbish truck as he tried to retrieve swordfish confiscated by authorities because they were caught out of season. Namibian Minister of Health and Social Services Bernard Haufiki says his country and others within the SADC bloc struggle with securing enough funds to fight the many communicable and non-communicable diseases in the region. current uh, worst type of um, space that I need to be at right now is non-communicable diseases. Uh, if you look at the amount of resources I'm spending on non-communicable diseases, it is threefold. If I take malaria, HIV and TB, uh, the, the, the price or the, the, the resourcing level of that, I have to multiply three times to confront NCDs. That is why as, as, as Botswana we felt it, it was imperative that we transition, we move from curative because it's unsustainable to focus our energies on the wellness aspect of it. 
The Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association is urging former Vice President Emerson Nangagwa to cut ties with President Robert Mugabe after he was removed from his cabinet. The association, aligned with Nangagwa, says there is no longer future within the ruling party and it has regrouped to stop President Mugabe from making Zimbabwe his personal property. Spokesperson of Zimbabwe's National War Veterans Association, Douglas Mahia, says Mugabe is trying to stall the ruling party and going against the will of the people. We had given time to the president uh, to be able to correct any mistakes as a human being, but to us it seems that he has failed and seems to have confirmed what we uh, identified as uh, the enemy's machinations in, in the politics of Zimbabwe. Let me tell you this story, that we are aware that he was knighted by the British because he had won battles for the British. What are these battles? The battles are how he handled the fighters from the liberation struggle to independence to where we are. So we are aware about what happened. Robert Mugabe is a British project. He has been brought up by the Jesuits. He has been identified by security agencies and recommended to become a president years before. But because one, we were young. Two, nobody had seen that, actually identified these fallacies. But today we have seen that he is totally committed to a dynasty against the wishes of the people. Furthermore, in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe's main Harare International Airport has been renamed Robert Gabriel Mugabe Airport in honor of the country's 93-year-old president. Reports say this is to mark Mugabe's contribution to black empowerment, especially the redistribution of white farmers' land. Mugabe's government is reportedly struggling to contain spending, with more than 90% of the budget going towards paying the salaries of civil servants. Tensions is, is mounting in the country over who will succeed Mugabe, who has been in power since 1980. The ZANU-PF Politburo today expelled Emerson Nangagwa as the party's vice president. Nangagwa, who was fired by Mugabe as deputy president on Monday, has fled to South Africa after claiming that he has been receiving death threats. Channel Africa News, I am Onilens Inzi. It is 17.06 Central African time. Thank you very much, Onele, for that news update. Let's start in Zimbabwe, where the National Liberation War Veterans Association is urging former Vice President Emerson Mnakangwa to cut ties with President Robert Mugabe after he was removed from his cabinet. The association, aligned with Mnakangwa, says there is no longer future within the ruling party and it has regrouped to stop President Robert Mugabe from making Zimbabwe his personal property. Mugabe's relationship with the ex-fighters was hit in all-time low over the differences on how to deal with the ruling party's contentious succession issue. While the war veterans want Mnakangwa to succeed, a faction that goes by the Monica Generation 40 is fiercely opposed to the vice president taking over from the ZANU-PF leader, preferring defense Minister Sidney Sekeramai instead. Spokesperson of Zimbabwe National War Veterans Association, Douglas Mahia, explains. 
initially zimbabwe the under colonial rule needed to be liberated and they formed an army to liberate themselves that is zandla and zipra sure. it had a particular pattern of thinking it had a particular way of interpreting its revolutionary principles and its revolutionary principles were borrowed from countries that were friendly uh, to, to to our armed struggle and then that meant we agreed on certain positions and the positions never accepted the question of one main rule or a family rule or a dynasty which is being funded by robert mugabe today because it had it needed the people to 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 take a position or decide on any such big matters as the matter of sucking a vice president the number one soldier of the revolution of zimbabwe now the war veterans association has urged emerson monangagwa to cut ties with president robert mugabe and zano pf party because and i quote there is no future in the ruling party for the midlands godfather why are you only raising these matters now mr mahia some would say zimbabwe has latched from one crisis to another yeah. because of what yeah. is perceived to be a lack of leadership uh, particularly yeah. from the ruling party a, a revolution is not an event it is a process and what if something is a process it requires time and it required human uh, uh, human involvement and human involvement is not perfect and we had given time to the president uh, to be able to correct any mistakes as a human being but to us it seems that he has failed and seems to have confirmed what we uh, identified as uh, the enemy's machinations in the, in the politics of Zimbabwe. Let me tell you this story sure. that we are aware that he was knighted by the British because he had won battles for the British. What are these battles? The battles are how he handled the, the, the fighters from the the liberation struggle to independence to where we are so we are aware about what happened robert mugabe is a british project he has been brought up by the jesuits he has been identified by uh, security agencies and they recommended to become a president years before but because one we were young two nobody had seen that actually identified these fallacies but today we have seen that he is totally committed to a dynasty against the wishes of the people. Now, the all-important ZANU-PF party elective conference is just a few weeks away. What do you think is going to be the outcome of this conference, Mr. Maia? This is the conference that your organization has deemed to be an illegal gathering. Not one member who is ZANU-PF is going to attend. All those that are going to attend are G40 people, G40 which is led by Gracie and Mugabe. So all they are going to do is to go and rubber stamp the thinking of the two in creating a dynasty. That is what they are going to do. And obviously I can tell you, they are going to come back with Grace as vice president. Now the Minister of Higher Education, Mr. Jonathan Moyo, in his tweet yesterday in response to a statement issued by Munangagwa says, and I quote, the difference between a press statement issued by a fugitive in the luxury of a five-star hotel in a foreign country and ZANOPF is like uh, that of day and night. ZANOPF is the people whose one center of power is President Mugabe who has asserted the people's authority. How do you respond to this, uh, Mr. Mahia? It's quite normal because the devil is speaking. The devil of the people of Zimbabwe is speaking. And I was on record on another radio 
Sure. When I said that the people of Zimbabwe must put this day when when you when when when, they, when Emerson Mnangagwa was fired, that the people of Zimbabwe is the day that they have gone under slavery uh, from these people because G40 is about looting the resources of the resources of Zimbabwe for their family. You will be hosting the veterans in Daba next week to chart the way forward of Zimbabwe. Who is invited to attend this Indaba Bista Mahia? If you are if you have a relative who probably participated in the liberation struggle alive or dead, you are invited. Because the war veterans today cannot take a decision for the people of Zimbabwe. The people of Zimbabwe require uh, 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 should really come to that meeting and be able to tell the war veterans what to do. The war veterans of Zimbabwe will continue, will continue as always to give direction to the people of Zimbabwe when as they try to explain or give explain the revolutionary the initial revolutionary principles. That is uh, Douglas Mahia, who is the spokesperson of the Zimbabwe War Veterans Association on the line from Harare in Zimbabwe, talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjarare. In an article written earlier this year by the Iron News, it suggests that the presence of a foreign military on African soil is a symptom of the fragility of African states and the power of external interests. The long and inglorious history of intervention runs from colonial and post-colonial struggles through to the Cold War and up to the present day. It further says that the twin hotspots are Sahel and the Horn of Africa. To help us make some sense of the situation, we spoke to Helmut Heitman, Dr. Ndubuyisi Christian, Ani, who is a researcher of peace and security research. Um, Dr. Helmut Heitman is a military and defense analyst. We also spoke to Obi Anyatike, editor-at-large for Iron News. And they were speaking to my colleague Benjamin Moshatama earlier. Look, I think the comment you made that you got uh, from, from Iron is correct. The presence of foreign troops in Africa is primarily a result of African countries not having security forces that are adequate to deal with the challenges they face. That's largely a factor of African countries being poor. They have lots of demand, schools, hospitals, roads, etc., and they don't have a lot of money. So they, they don't have money to put into, into defense. In some cases, there's also legal issues that the, the security forces become politicized. But it, it's very often a case of money. They can be very professional but simply don't have the funds for the number of troops they need, the equipment they need. And the major countries, the European countries, America, others, generally are reluctant to provide security assistance. They give all sorts of reasons. You know, the country's not democratic. Uh, how do you become a democracy if you can't prevent bandits burning down a village? Or, you know, the country government isn't entirely honest, it's corrupt. Well, find me a European government that's absolutely corruption-free. There's no such thing. So we have the problem that African countries simply don't have the security capabilities to deal with things like ISIS, for instance, or Boko Haram, or M23. And you have the situation where we, we created the, the Africa standby force. Uh, there's our CERC as a sort of interim standby. But it doesn't seem to work. If you go back to Mali in, in 2012-2013, um, I made some enemies by referring to it as African stand, stand, standby force uh, and standing by, watching. You know, nothing mm-hmm. happened until finally the French intervened. Everybody complained that the French intervened. In the Central African Republic in 2013, when South African troops got caught by surprise there, I again made enemies by referring to the African stand-aside force mm-hmm. because Farmac was supposed to prevent things like that happening, simply stood aside and let Seleka charge through. Um, for what reason now, there may have been also political issues within some of the two contributing countries. 
which is always a problem if you have neighboring countries trying to keep the peace in a, in a country in their own region, because everybody's got interests that overlap. So the underlying problem is there are security challenges. Africa is a bit of a black hole in terms of security. There are, as you touched on just now, there are major international countries and, for that matter, companies that have interests in Africa, which are not always served by peace and stability, on the one hand, or, on the other hand, they're in competition with each other, just as they were in the Cold War and the colonial era. Mm. And I think that latter aspect we will see hotting up over the next couple of decades. Uh, Obi, from your perspective, the very uh, advanced mechanisms that have been adopted by the African Union peacekeeping uh, troops dealing with its own continental conflicts. Uh, but lately we've seen uh, some withdrawals by AU troops, the latest being that uh, uh, they will be withdrawing from Somalia, I think, next month. This was according to the head of the AU mission in the country. Now, what more needs to be done by the African Union peacekeeping mechanisms in order to strengthen their own might so we can have less reliance on foreign uh, missions? Or is it a complementary uh, styles system? The AU reforms uh, are about trying to raise more um, indigenous cash or, or, or money from member states to fund peacekeeping. Um, those reforms are a little bit stalled. Um, it was meant to be a, a quid pro quo that AU would work more closely with the United Nations and the United Nations would be more supportive in terms of logistical assistance to AU missions. Um, but with, with uh, the Trump in the White House, uh, who signaled that maybe the U.S. wants to, wants to roll back uh, from uh, peacekeeping commitments, that those reforms are kind of up in the air at the moment. Um, it's all part of the parcel of a broader-based reform movement within the AU, but it's kind of important in terms of its peacekeeping capacity. Because what we've seen in Somalia is that the EU have cut back on, on, on financial support, mm-hmm. uh, and we've had uh, all manner of problems in terms of some governments, particularly Uganda and even Kenya, talking about a premature withdrawal uh, from from Somalia. So money is critical. Um, I think African governments within the AU have always said that we're putting our boots on the ground and we're paying in blood uh, in the the sense we're trying to build international security and and actually recognize when the Reckoning comes for the bill. Dr. Ani, just in a minute or so, the same question that I, I posed uh, to Mr. Anyadike. I know that uh, the African Union is making effort um, to raise its funds, but the withdrawal shows that um, there's a whole lot of things that they need to get right uh, before um, they could be able to support a mission by itself. And the WTO, that 0.2% levy that was talked about earlier on that the African Union is trying to introduce to fund its mission, it's a long way off. That, uh, the, the constraints around the WTO rules and also internal challenges about the capability to get that done in record time. So and some um, Somalia mission may not even benefit from the reform process. But what... Africa needs to do that is that even if it means not paying the UN rate, like, you know, having the soldiers on the ground, paying them like the rates that are being paid, because it's a whole lot of, a lot of money. But if African governments could agree that if the soldiers are going in, they pay them somehow at a, at a national rate, but also in a critical um, situation rate, 
that that could help like more of solidarity from African actors. But sometimes a lot of concerns are being that uh, when we go for missions, mm-hmm. sometimes they concern that probably mm-hmm. it's going for the money, that states are going for the money. But if we do that and put a lot of commitment into getting um, things done, I think Africa can, can progress uh, further on that regard. That's Dr. Ndubuyisa Christian Anne, who is a researcher for peace and security at the Institute for Security Studies in Addis Ababa. You also heard from Helmut Haitman, a military and defense analyst, and Obi Anyadike, editor at large for Iron News. They were speaking to Benjamin Mashadama at 17.20 Central African Time. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is 17.21 Central African Time. It's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. My name is Spumele Lezondi. Now, an app demonstrating how technology can be at the forefront of combating crime has been launched in South Africa. The Namola app allows users to alert their nearest police officers when they are in need of assistance. It is designed to make crime reporting more efficient. Tlantla Mashango reports. The Namola app was first implemented as a pilot project in the Gauteng province and the Twane Metro Police Department over a year ago. It is an application for mobile devices to instantly send out emergency alert to police officers demonstrating how mobile technology can assist in crime fighting. After installing the Namola application on mobile devices, users will be able to report crimes or emergencies to police patrol vehicles as they happen. It uses GPS technology to pinpoint one's location and help police to reach them faster. More from Namola Chief Ambassador Yusuf Abramji. We know crime is a problem in South Africa. When people arrive, they often attack being followed from the airport. We have hijackings, we have murders. As much as we complain about crime, we have to be proactive and we have to find solutions. Now, MOLA is a safety app available free of charge to the people of South Africa, the national broadcaster, the SABC is now a media partner. Now, MOLA is the press of a button. You can get help instantly. We guarantee a callback within 90 seconds of you pressing the button. It's all GPS located, which means that... Uh, you don't have to tell them where you are and whatever the police, nearest police car is alerted. We've had hundreds of success stories and Namola is going to make South Africa safe. My appeal to the people of South Africa is 
Let's download the app. Let's use it. Pete Matei Namola, app chief executive officer, says it is the fastest growing safety app in South Africa and promises a callback time of under 90 seconds, a potential solution to the outcry regarding police response time in communities. We have about 85,000 registered users and that is growing fast. Like it's growing by hundreds of users at the moment every day. We're now available nationally and today we're expanding our coverage locally. But the reception has been phenomenal. Users love the fact that when they use that Namola button to request assistance, a lot of people... There's such a trust deficit between communities and law enforcement quite often that people think that nothing is going to happen when they push that button. And when they get that call back within an average of about 18 seconds, they are just blown away. And I think this also goes a long way towards restoring trust between South Africans and the law enforcement officials. South Africa's public broadcaster, the SABC, has pledged his support for the app. More from the acting group CEO, Nomsa Piliso. SABC, we believe that in part of fulfilling our public mandate is to make sure that the citizens are informed and are very knowledgeable about the options that they have. So um, this opportunity of this Namola app came for us as a natural fit because it helps us also to fulfill our public mandate in terms of keeping the streets of South Africa safe. Through the app, community members are encouraged to report crimes in progress or any suspicious behavior. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Mashangu in Johannesburg. Yashwa Mardini didn't win a medal, but was one of the biggest stories at last year's Olympics in Rio. She was part of the International Olympic Committee's refugee team less than a year after making a hazardous journey from Syria in search of a new life. She and her sister helped tow a boat full of migrants across the sea to shore in Greece. A movie about the ordeal is in production, but Yashwa Mardini's main objectives are to speak up for refugees and to secure a place at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. The BBC's Alex Kapstick has been to meet her in Berlin. I shouldn't be alive today. I should have been killed by the bomb that hit the pool in Damascus. I should have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. I should have been one of the many faceless refugees who died along the way. Isra Mardini's powerful story attracted global attention. The Syrian swimmer who escaped the bloodshed and months later was competing at the Olympics in Rio. I was like, oh my God, like I was like really shaking. After only one year, I'm a refugee in Germany and there was a refugee Olympic team. It was incredible. We'd like to now welcome, uh, herzlich willkommen, Isra Mardini. Inevitably, the experience has transformed Isra's life. Assured and confident she's now a celebrity in demand. She has a sponsor and an agent. She's rubbed shoulders with Pope Francis and Barack Obama. A book and movie deal have been signed. It's a world away from the difficulties she faced pursuing her dreams in Damascus. It was dangerous, so I stopped swimming. It was dangerous to get to the swimming pool? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Because of the fighting? Yeah. So you had to escape? Yeah. There was no other way. You'd rather try to have a chance in life than yeah, sitting there and crying for what's happening. You're on the beach in Turkey. Yeah. There's a dinghy waiting to take you and other refugees to Greece. 
the dinghy was taking on water and you and your sister dived into the water, yeah. into the sea. Yeah, of course I was afraid, um, it was dark and yeah, I was just seeing the island but never reaching to it. Okay, I helped the boat and so on, but it was not only me or only my sister. If we didn't all of us work together till we reached to the, to the shore, it will never we, and me and my sister will never even make it happen. But you can imagine that they told you it's 45 minutes trip and you stayed three hours and a half. What did you have with you? Nothing. My jeans and my t-shirt. My shoes was also gone. I think you arrived in Berlin or in Germany in 2015, yeah. in September 2015. Yeah. If someone had said to you, Israel, in 11 months time, I'll you're, you're going to be in Rio. Them. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'll just say I... Pretty little liar, go away, you know. Ready? Shortly after arriving in Germany, Isra, who was staying in a refugee camp, attended a training session at this swimming club in Berlin's Olympic Park. Sven Spanakrebs, a coach, was on duty that day. He would become her mentor and one of her closest friends. She was um, a little girl who wanted to swim and um, at this moment I didn't know anything about the story and I heard the full story just a few days later when we sat together um, for dinner. They told me the story and I just said, okay, how they did that. You know Isra very well now. She seems a very determined, driven 19-year-old. How would you describe Isra? Yeah, she was always um, a girl who knew what she wanted to do. Um, reach what are her goals and for that she's working very hard and it's not just in sport it's also in her normal life Sven Spenerkrebs is now a permanent member of Isra Mardini's growing entourage helping her balance commercial engagements with training and her work with the United Nations Refugee Agency her commitments also include helping the acclaimed British director Stephen Doldry make a film about her life. It's amazing, like I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm excited to be sometimes on set and watch. And who would you like to play Isra Maldini? To be honest, I have no idea. I would like Isra Maldini to play Isra Maldini, but uh, <laughs> I cannot act. I think I'll just wait and see who she will be. You've, you've said you want to compete at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Um, is that an absolutely realistic ambition to compete for the refugee team at the Rizwan or perhaps for Germany or perhaps for Syria? My ambition uh, is just to be an athlete. <laughs> it is athletes, they are competing, they are not asking from where are you, they are asking what is your game. And if I'm going to start for Germany or for my country or for the refugee Olympic team, I'm going to do the best I can and it will be my pleasure. That report was compiled by the BBC's Alex Kepsik. You also heard in the reports from Yusra Madini, who is one of the Olympians who were in Rio. She didn't win a, a medal when she was there, but she is. She was part of the refugee team, as we told you that she was a refugee from Syria initially and then based in Berlin, and she was part of that team, and now she's trying to compete to get to Tokyo 2020. Let's get to news headlines. Now here's one Lentinti. The International Criminal Court has authorized prosecutors to open a full investigation into alleged crimes against humanity in Burundi. 
The Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association urges Vice President Emerson Nangagwa to cut ties with President Robert Mugabe and countries others within the SADC bloc struggle with securing enough funds to fight the many communicable and non-communicable diseases in the region. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Thank you very much, Onele. Your time is 17.31 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Trail Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomelele Zonde with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, November is Men's Health Awareness Month, and conversations about the issue of men's health have started around the world. This annual awareness campaign is popularly known as Movember. Experts say men have a reputation of reluctance when it comes to seeking medical attention this especially true when this is rather especially true when issues relating to their reproductive health are brought up in south africa men have a one in eight chances of getting cancer in their lifetime and a one out of every 14 men is at risk of getting prostate cancer to speak to us more about this now is dr marion morkel who is the chief medical officer at the south african Financial Services Group, Sanlam. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Thank you so much for allowing me to share important information about this topic. Mm. Uh, Dr. Morkel, what exactly is Movember? Movember is a month in which we raise awareness. Um, we're talking about the medical profession uh, working hand in hand with uh, society organizations, raise awareness around the um, increasing rates of male cancer. So we're talking about all male organ cancers from testicular cancer to prostate cancer. Um, And it's often a subject that is overlooked or not spoken about because it's always a difficult subject for men to share with one another. And so we hope that by encouraging men to um, uh, grow moustaches, that that other men may ask, what's happening? Why are you doing this? It raises funds yes, for cancer, but it also brings about conversation, so it makes it far easier for men to share their stories. Mm. Um, Movember has been going on for a number of years. What are you finding from the men who engage after Movember? Do, is there more awareness? Do they go to get tested, or is it a matter of just growing a massage and having fun for the month? Um. Look, there's a lot of having fun for the month, and many corporate organizations, including Sunlam, have in-house competitions, etc., etc. But even if it's 20 to 30% of those people having fun starting to talk and engage by with it in the coffee breaks about the reason for Movember, then we already a step in the right direction. And uh, based on my experience on um, the clinical side, we definitely see a far more easier flow amongst men to start talking about these subjects when it is quite a popular thing to do. And the Movember is the thing that sort of breaks the ice so that men are allowed to speak about this and share their concerns and their worries about uh, screening for cancer. 
Yes, and what are some of the most common cancers that men get? We do know that there is uh, prostate cancer, um, but yes. what are what are the other common uh, forms of cancer? And maybe okay. if you can also explain what prostate cancer actually is. Okay, so so let's talk just about the common cancers in men. So the most common cancer in men, and this is also um, in, included in what we see in our cancer claim stats at Sunlam, it is by far prostate cancer. Um, and then even though it's not a male organ, unfortunately it's about the habits of men and the lifestyles of men. And because there are more male smokers than female smokers, we also have quite a large increase of lung cancer amongst men. Uh, and then the other male reproductive cancers that we'll see, we see penile cancer, we see testicular cancer, um, and we also see quite a bit of colon cancer uh, and cancers of the gastrointestinal tract, so esophageal cancer and liver cancer. When it comes to what is prostate cancer, prostate is a gland, uh, tissue that, that hugs the bladder, and its primary role in men is to supply uh, important nutrients and fluid for the semen as it passes down uh, the urinary tract. And unfortunately, with time, those cells in the prostate gland can change and, and can have malignant cells. So it's very important that men go for annual checkups, particularly if you were over the age of 45, to ensure that your prostate is still healthy and doing well. And what does the test entail, and why are men scared of screening so much? Okay, so prostate cancer. If, if this conversation was 20 years ago, the only way doctors could screen for prostate cancer, it was by doing a manual rectal examination, and men felt this was very, very uh, intimidating, they felt very uncomfortable, and even when they had real fears or real concerns, they would miss this. But the good news is there's a very simple blood test called PSA, which picks up certain markers in the blood, which tells us, or tells us whether or not the prostate is enlarged and whether or not based on that level, we would be concerned that we need to do further testing. It's a simple um, test. Uh, you click in and out and you then know uh, what's your risk, your current risk for prostate cancer. So that is very, very easy to do. Uh, when it comes to testicular cancer, we encourage men uh, to do self-examination uh, at least once a month, we would say. Uh, state after shower, if you could just examine and get used to the way your body or organs feel. And if there's anything that concerns you, any discomfort, any encourage you to go and see your doctor. Um, where can people get more information about this? Okay, um, so we we work alongside cancer. We have quite um, a community initiatives where we spread awareness with the cancer organization. So you can go straight to the cancer website at www.cancer.co.za or even our own website, www. All right, thank you very much for joining us, Marion Mokel. It's a pleasure. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Dr. Marion Mokel. There's the Chief Medical Officer at the South African Financial Services Group, Sanlam.
South Africa's Minister of Health, Dr. Aaron Mutswaledi, says the recent outbreaks of malaria seen in the SEDEC region are concerning and have the potential to threaten efforts to eliminate the mosquito-borne disease by 2020. Mutswaledi is among the health ministers from Southern Africa who are gathering in South Africa's Bulukwane city in the Limbobo province as part of annual meetings between the regional health leaders to discuss a range of health issues. Mutswaledi says the event has met most of the delegates' expectations? Of course, it has, because we have discussed, we've made agreements, we've taken resolutions. But up to so far, yes, it has reached our expectations. Give us an overview, Minister, of some of the issues that have been discussed at this meeting. We have discussed a broad range of issues. The most prominent ones among them was the issue of elimination of malaria within southern countries and the issue of control of TB within the southern countries because both diseases are very, very problematic within SADC. Would you say that this meeting is relevant to those who are fighting malaria and TB? Oh, extremely so, extremely so. Let me start with malaria. There's no one country, and I repeat, no one country that can put up strategies to fight malaria without working with its neighbors. In other words, as South Africa, we can't sit here and produce a program and say this is a program of fighting malaria without involving Botswana, Zimbabwe, Mozambique and Swaziland. It just doesn't happen. And you are aware that I'm not mentioning Lesotho because Mm. there's no malaria in Lesotho. There are no mosquitoes there. The place is extremely cold. Malaria won the hot and warmer areas. So in the case of South Africa, it's the Vembe district in Limpopo, the Mobani district in Limpopo, the Chanzeni district in Pumalanga, the Mkanyagude district in KwaZulu-Natal, all of them are bordering our neighboring countries. Namibia has just reported that there is no way they can fight mosquitoes without the involvement of Angola. Botswana cannot do so without the involvement of Zimbabwe. So any country within SADC cannot have any program as a standalone program without fighting with the other countries. That is why the last day of this summit every year is always dedicated to what is called SADC Malaria Day. The country that is hosting this summit will choose a village where ministers will go and get into the houses and spray the walls with DDT to fight the malaria because the mainstay of fighting malaria is to kill mosquitoes and the most effective tool is to kill them with DDT. TB, what we're discussing is we also noted that the World Health Organization has shown that there are 30 countries in the world that are regarded as the high burden countries. That means that are carrying more TB than all the other countries. And unfortunately, they've noted that out of these 30 countries, one third come from SADC only. You know, about nine or so are SADC countries. And so we're discussing what do we do as SADC because we don't want to have that tag that we are the most prevalent region in the whole world. But we're also discussing the issues that are going to take place in Moscow, in Russia next week. The World Health Organization, together with the Russian Federation, have called a meeting in Moscow of ministers of health and other world experts to discuss TB as a preparation of the high-level meeting of the heads of states in New York next year in September. That is, TB has become such a world problem that we thought the issue is now above ministers of health. It must be discussed by heads of states presidents, prime ministers, and kings. This is happening for the first time in history. That TB is discussed by heads of state. That discussion is going to take place at the United Nations General Assembly 
in September next year. The meeting in Moscow is going to prepare for that. And now, SADC ministers have to take a stand. What are we taking to Moscow? What are we going to say to the World Organization and other experts? What message do we say they must send to the heads of state? Now, you mentioned that there's no one country that can fight malaria without the involvement of its neighbors. How much of a threat is cross-border malaria to many countries' elimination efforts? It is. It is a very big threat. If one country lowers the bar, it doesn't help. No matter how hard the next country is working, it doesn't help them. That's how important and powerful cross-border malaria is. The reasons are simple. Mosquitoes don't know borders. They don't need passports. They just bite across the borders. And if one country sprays the houses and mosquitoes discover that they can't go into that house because it's sprayed, they'll simply move to the house across the border that is not sprayed and they'll continue their biting. Maybe let me explain the mechanism. The mosquitoes that are biting people are not all mosquitoes. It's the female mosquito. Male mosquitoes are vegetarians. It is female mosquitoes that need blood. Why? Because they lay eggs. A mosquito cannot lay eggs if it has not imbibed blood. It has to get blood to lay eggs. If you make sure that they don't come in contact with people by spraying or making sure that mosquitoes don't bite people, then the whole process of malaria comes to a standstill because no eggs will be laid. And if mosquitoes, their population do not increase, malaria will die off. But at the same time, are you encouraged by the progress that has been made towards achieving the goal of malaria elimination? We were encouraged until this year because three years to four years ago, we formed what we call E8 within SADC. E8 means elimination aid. We believe that eight countries in SADC are in a position to bring an end to malaria. And we said four of those are frontline. When we say they are frontline, we mean they are in a better position than the others. And so the frontline countries in this case is South Africa, is Swaziland, is Namibia, is Botswana. We believe those who are in a position to bring an end to malaria. The other four is Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Zambia and Angola, which we thought they would be able to do it by 2080. The front line will be able to do it by 2020. So we had a setback that seven out of these eight countries had a resurgence of malaria last year and this year, and that's why we are so deeply worried. That is South Africa's Minister of Health, Dr. Aaron Mutualedi, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. It is now time for economics. Here's Amanda Machak. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. President Jacob Zuma says the fact that South Africa was able to move out of the recent technical recession despite tough economic conditions is proof that the economy is moving in the right direction. Zuma was delivering his annual address to the National Council of Provinces in Parliament. He says the good news came at a time when the country was celebrating the fifth anniversary of the National Development Plan. This was a significant affirmation which encouraged us to focus on positive developments and provide the necessary support to the sectors that can help us reignite growth. If we continue in this path, our nation will reap the economic benefits and there will be significant change in the living conditions of our people.
we need to provide the necessary support to the sectors that can help us reignite growth. South Africa's mobile operator MTN has welcomed Nigerian lawmakers' decision, which has found no wrongdoing regarding the repatriation of almost 20 billion U.S. dollars to South Africa. A Nigerian Senate investigative committee has found that there is no proof of collusion to contravene the country's laws. MTN's Chris Maroleng says they are still studying the report, which was released on Wednesday. Certainly we will uh, spend some time to study the outcome of the investigation and the report. And uh, I think in many ways this uh, vindicates our position as we have insisted uh, previously that all of our actions in regards to uh, our financial transactions have been uh, in compliance with the law. Mozambique needs financial support from the International Monetary Fund and is open to another investigation into two billion U.S. dollars of undisclosed debt to hasten the restoration of aid. That's according to Finance Minister Adriano Malain. The IMF cancelled its funding last year after the emergence of the loans to three state-owned companies that were not approved by Parliament or disclosed publicly, sending the country's currency into freefall. The IMF said last month it was not in talks with Mozambique over a new aid program for next year, as the government was yet to explain gaps on how the previously hidden loans were spent. Mobile financial services in Zimbabwe have overtaken traditional methods of transacting, with 11 billion U.S. dollars worth of transactions being recorded through the innovative digital platforms alone between January and September this year. In the context of the prevailing near cashless situation in the economy, many consumers have used mobile money and electronic platforms to conduct their transactions. And the first ever Special Economic Zone Symposium of the Africa Union Commission is underway in Zambia's capital, Lusaka. Delegates at the four-day meeting are expected to have extensive deliberations on the establishment of Special Economic Zones as the continent looks at industrialization as the only key to development. Arthur Davis Sikopo reports from Lusaka. Zambia is hosting the first ever Special Economic Zones, SEZS, Symposium under the African Union Commission, AUC. The meeting that opened in Lusaka on Tuesday, 7th November 2017, is expected to close on the 10th after an extensive deliberations by the over 30 delegates from various entities around the world. In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 14.17 South African rand, 10.48 Botswana Pula and 9.96 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 76 pence to the British pound and 86 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,283 and platinum at $931 per ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is at $63.50 a barrel. That's the latest business news. Thanks, Amanda. Tabiso has your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabiso Ntema with your latest sports update at this hour. 
Zimbabwe National Cricket A squad is in Dubai for a two-week tour. They will play five one-day matches against the United Arab Emirates with the series opener scheduled for the 9th of November. Four of the matches will be played at the ICC Academy Oval with one match set for the iconic Dubai International Stadium. Zimbabwe cricket spokesperson Dalintin Majonga explains. The first match um, got underway today. It's, um, they are going to be playing five one-day matches, 50 over matches. This is very important for us. Um, as you are aware, we have been trying to create a wider pool of players um, for our national team. So these matches against these associate sides are very important for us in Dubai. Majonga says after the UAE tour, they will be now focusing on preparations for their South African tour which kicks off on Boxing Day with a four-day test match. Our focus is on the Boxing Day fixture in South Africa, and I was just thinking four-day cricket, day-night match, pink ball cricket. You know, this will be an historic fixture, and what I can tell you is as Zimbabwe, we are excited to be pioneering and kick-starting a new era in test cricket. But more importantly, we are actually hoping to emerge with some positives uh, from the field of play in PE as well. Uh, you know, the Proteas have been in devastating form, and we are aware some of their top players who missed the Bangladesh tour might be back for the Zimbabwe match um, as they prepare for India, which means South Africa will even be stronger. But on our part, like I have said, we have just come out of a tough test series at home to the Windies, and our performance, especially in the second match, was quite encouraging. Um, so as we, between now and um, PE, our boys are preparing uh, by participating in our premier first-class competition, the Logan Cup, uh, which is four-day cricket that we play here. Uh, After that, the squad will go into camp for intensive training before we leave for South Africa. Uh, We will be in South Africa 10 days before the Boxing Day test, and during that time we'll play a three-day practice match, um, which should put us in good stead for the historic test, four-day test. Anti-doping agency in Kenya, ADAC, could prefer legal charges against drug cheat Jemima Sumgong under the 2016 anti-doping laws that came into effect last year. ADAC Chief Executive Officer Jafta Rugut says their legal team is looking at which charges they will prefer against the reigning Olympic marathon champion. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi picks up the story. Sumgong says she did not use the drug intentionally and sought therapeutic use exception. The ban rules the marathon are ineligible to run from April 3rd, 2017 to April 2021 due to using EPO, which is banned. Sumgong had caught the eye by becoming the first Kenyan woman to win an Olympic gold medal in the marathon during the 2016 Rio Olympics. However, she failed an out-of-the-competition doping test in February 2017 and then declined to have her backup B sample tested. In her defense, Sumgong argued that the Sports Disputes Tribunal that she had tested positive for EPO after seeking treatment at Kenyatta National Hospital in Nairobi. She further claimed to have gone through a blood transfusion and medication. The tribunal rejected the explanation after the hospital declared that there were no such records on Sumgong and that the medical reports she availed to the tribunal were fake. Edak argued that Sumgong had failed to declare this to the doping control form, noting that the athlete had been sanctioned in 2012 for a similar offense, but the ban was lifted by Athletics Kenya. 
Incidentally, Sumgong's former training partner, the 2014 Chicago and Boston Marathon champion, Rita Gipto, is currently serving a four-year ban after also testing positive for EPO. Sumgong has the right to appear. On to football news. General, the head coach of Nigeria Super Eagles, has had his preparations for the upcoming games against Algeria and Argentina, scuppered by news that Portoloni, Mikel Agu, has withdrawn from the squad due to injury. The Nigerian Football Federation made the announcement yesterday that the central midfielder has pulled out of the squad. This is Africa Digest. Let's speak about our stories. The Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association urged a former vice president to cut ties with President Robert Mugabe. November is Men's Health Awareness Month, speaking conversations around the world on this. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. For myself, it's Pumelele Zundi, producer Luanda Mohamed, technical producer Debucho Moswewu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for joining us. You can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za, channel Africa 1, plus 2782-332-5905. Bye-bye.